So here we go in Jude chapter 1, only chapter, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves 
in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Typically, the book of Jude is maybe kind of an afterthought for some people. It kind of is a victim of benign neglect. Maybe some of you didn't even know there was a little book in the end of the Bible. Something this short. It's the fifth shortest book of the entire Bible. The shorter books we'll see um, are connected to other books, and so I think this one stands alone. But it's certainly the one of the shortest books of the New Testament. And so I have a couple of things that I think I want to, to kind of cast out there before you as we walk through the Scripture together. The first one is this. I think that the risks that were evident in the very first church, the first churches that the letter of Jude was written to, are also present for us. That the greatest risk, and the gospel encourages us to think this way, is not out there. But sometimes the most devastating thing is inside our own hearts. And the greatest evil isn't out there, it's inside of us. Such that sometimes the greatest dangers in the life of the church aren't the things and forces out to get the church, but sometimes the most dangerous things, and some of you know this because you've been hurt by a church, exist inside it. And that warning is a good place for us as a baby church plant to start thinking about who we are. But the second thing I want to do, just like we spent the summer looking through the Psalms, I want to lower maybe your anxiety level for the Bible. Uh, one of my favorite kind of social prophets of our day is a guy by the name of Dave Ramsey. I encourage you, uh, we'll probably this next year we'll even, if we can, host and, and teach people. Uh, there's some great principles of just conservative stewardship, how to spend less than you act- or spend less than you make. I know that's crazy, it'll blow your mind, right? Um, but there's some really cool things that for, in terms of attacking debt that Dave Ramsey says that I think are helpful. And the first one is this, is like if you have a lot of debts, if you have different loans, he encourages you to do something. Instead of tackling the biggest one first, you tackle one of the smallest ones first. Because a th- couple things happen. The first thing is you just attack something that's manageable and achievable. The second thing that happens is the momentum and excitement that comes from doing the thing that you wish you could do is pretty amazing. I mean, I want to tackle debt, but typically we just kind of get paralyzed and do nothing. And when you, when you tackle something small and you achieve it, there's a sense of momentum and excitement. Here we go. Are you ready for this? You just read a book of the Bible. All right? If, don't look shocked. I know because some of you are like, it's your first time to do that. That's okay. That's a big deal for us. That's a big deal. Because when we find our, our identity in, in the Scripture, when we align ourselves with God's Word, it, it can sometimes be 
intimidating and you open the Bible and the learning curve is steep and you don't know where you are. And so at the very least, just now, you might have done something, even just by being in this room, just by virtue of being here today, you just read a book of the Bible, right? When no one's looking, pat yourself on the back. And we did it together. And we'll do it again for the next two weeks. Jude teaches us not only that there are things that are accessible, but there's the third thing I think is fun is we get to meet a guy that's pretty exciting. A, a guy that we, we come to find out that he's, I don't know if you caught it in the very first phrase, it says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ, but a brother of James. And that makes him, by the distributive property, I guess, or associative property, the brother of Jesus. That's a big deal. Because if anyone were to stand up here and tell you that I was a fake, or to tell you about my past, or to let you in on the real me, and to reveal that I am a fraud, it would be my brother. There's no one who has a more intimate knowledge of my own weakness and frailty than my brother. In fact, if he was, I would, I would try to take the microphone from him, right? And what we find here, that for those of you who may be scared of the Bible, or maybe have a great deal of skepticism toward the Bible, this is one of my favorite books. Along with James, if there was anyone who should have come along and said, look, my brother Jesus, he's crazy, it would be Jude or James. And what do we have here? We have the brother of Jesus, the guy that walked alongside him closely, coming along and saying, no, this guy's for real. In fact, beware, my brother who I lived with, one day, the picture of Jude tells us, he's coming back as a judge He's coming back. He will return. And he asks us to take things extremely seriously. So these three things, I want us to get a perspective of what the brother of Jesus would have us to know about, about Jesus himself. I want us to have maybe easier access into the Bible because you just finished a book of the Bible. Maybe it will begin to open your eyes to the other kinds of things. But not only that, I hope it will kind of stir up a DNA for us as a church, for us as followers of Jesus to be on our guard. And I think the crux of this entire book, especially we see it in the beginning, can maybe be summarized this way. I don't know if, if you're like me, uh, I'm, I'm a Puritan. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, I can't say anything without a compound sentence. And so I've tried to shave it down, but here we go anyway. So believers must be on their guard, Jude wants us to know, lest they be robbed of any essential joy of Christian faith by the craftiness or plausibility of ungodliness that comes in the form of deception because the stakes are eternally high. Jude wants us to know that we must be on our guard. We must actively and intentionally keep our faith close to us. Our trust in Christ ought to be the center of our attention. Because some of the greatest joys we find in the gospel are often robbed of us by plausible or even crafty or sneaky kinds of arguments that come and deceive us. And the reason this is important, Jude tells us, is because the stakes are eternally high. So let's begin to kind of walk through this. I want to start with the welcome, the kind of the, the introduction, if you will, that Jude is writing here. Let's just start with kind of piece by piece. Let's, let's pull this apart, and maybe the first section will kind of speak something, I hope, to us. We have Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. So Jude, uh, the, the, the Greek form of this, of the Hebrew word Judah, is Judas. And so, 
the agreement here seems to be that this, this Jude or Judas isn't the Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve. Now, some people would make an argument that this was actually one of the names of the guy Thaddeus, who was one of the twelve, the less known of the twelve, certainly, that his name was Judas Thaddeus or Thaddeus Judas, and, and he actually wrote this. But he says something that's ex- exceptionally important because Thaddeus and, and Judas Iscariot, for that matter, would have never come along and said that they were a brother to James. And so we're left with this conclusion that this Jude who's writing here considers himself a servant of Jesus and a brother to James. He's a brother to James. Now this is important, all right? Uh, This is especially important because those of you who maybe have a Catholic background are going to find this troubling. You're not going to like it when Jude says that he's James' brother. Because our Catholic friends would say that there's a doctrine that they would hold to. It's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Namely, not only that Mary was conceived of by the Holy Spirit to give a miraculous birth to Jesus, but she remained a virgin. Now, there's a problem with this. The Bible doesn't say that. And on more than one occasion, we find out that that Jesus has brothers. It says that he has other people that are around him on a regular basis. They're his brothers. And they seem to be kind of Uh, showing up here and there so much so that Jesus even uses them as kind of a punchline when they say, hey, we saw this in the Gospel of Mark, your brothers and your family are here. And he's like, who's my brother? Who's my mother? Who's my sister? Those who do the will of God, they're my brother, sister, and mother. Giving us a new and radical understanding of family. That the family that God has adopted us into is greater than the family we're born into. The family that we're born again into by faith is greater than the family that you were born into. But, this this is a problem for some of our our Christian friends. Because they would say that if Jude is a brother of Jesus, then that means he would have had to somehow not been an actual brother of Jesus and and maybe would have been like a a cousin. Maybe Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, had a sister who also had sons named James and Jude, Judas. Right? Again, here's the problem. You can Google that when it's not in the Bible. You've got to kind of figure that one out on your own. You're going to have to dig in there to find something that it doesn't say. So here's why this is important for us. Jude is the brother of Jesus. We don't really have any reason to doubt him. In fact, this, by, this particular book was, was confirmed the most in 2 Peter. You'll hear me refer to that in a minute. He's a servant of Jesus. Already we're in something weird, right? Maybe some of you don't have older brothers. I'm going to have to explain this. Are there any of you that would look to your older, older sibling and be like, yes, I'm a servant of my older brother? Like, it, I don't know how that rolls off of your tongue, but I have enough like juvenile and, and childish angst that I still would have a problem with that. My, you're my servant. I'm, I'm your servant. Like you at, at, your, at your command, brother. But I don't know how your family dynamic was but we're already tiptoeing into something that's foreign to us, isn't it? I mean, this is already weird. My brother, of whom I am his servant. And he makes a reference to his other brother. I like that, James. James, who also, you know, follower of Jesus, who also testified to, to the good news of Jesus, having known his brother Jesus. But, but he doesn't refer to James that way, does he? And if there was ever a moment where Jude could say, you know, Jesus, my older brother, he's crazy. Because let's be honest, who's not looking for an opportunity to out their brother or sister as crazy, right? 
And here we go. I just got a volunteer. I don't want to make eye contact. We have volunteers to out their brothers and sisters. So th- this, this is powerful for Jude to say, I'm not just the brother of Jesus, but I believe in him and I follow him and serve him as well. All the way to the point where his doxology, his glorification of Jesus, did you catch it? At the very end, all glory to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Is that not the highest possible praise you could pay anyone, much less the highest praise that you could even consider about your brother? Maybe it's just me who has angst against my brother, but this, this, is, this is difficult. But Jude is introducing something to us that's interesting. So he keeps going, and he begins to declare for us the good news That gives us a context for listening to the rest of the book. He says, to those, and he says three things, who are called, who are beloved, and who are kept for Christ Jesus. You're called, you're beloved, and you're kept. And then he wishes something on these people who have an identity now through Jesus Christ. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So let's just hang in there for just a couple of minutes. Like he says, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. When he's speaking to these Christians, he's saying something that is especially important. I told you earlier, Jude seems to have been probably kind of the victim of benign neglect. It's rarely, I don't know, I'd love for some of you to come, like you church folk, to like correct me after I preach today, but like it's rarely a passage that anyone memorizes. I don't know anybody who's like right out of Jude, like, and, they just, and they quote Jude. It's rare, very rare. It's rarely the topic of a sermon, and it's certainly rarely a subject in any seminary or university class. In fact, it just gets kind of lumped in what are known as the general epistles, James, First and Second Peter. The epistles, these letters that were written to churches and to individuals at the end of the New Testament. It's kind of just thrown in there. Here you go, here's this other guy, and then we move on. But that's interesting because even though it may have been the victim of benign neglect for the last couple of centuries, that wasn't the case for the earliest church. So much so that here's what I would challenge you to do. If you get a chance this week, read 2 Peter, also a short and accessible book. And most of what we find in 2 Peter quotes Jude. So Peter, Kephas, the rock on which the church is built, right? He even quotes what Jude says authoritatively, referring to the brother of Jesus. And the things that Jude warns for the earliest church seem to be extremely important for that first century church even though we may have neglected it ourselves. And so I want you to hear why that's important. He says, to those who are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ. Hear the good news. If you wander in this place and you don't know what's up next, maybe if your life right now is defined by confusion and you don't know what happens next, and you're really worried about the next few decisions, and you're worried that you might mess up, you're worried that you're on a path that went bad somewhere back in your past, and you're confused about the future, can I I tell you something about the God who knows the future? He has called you. He has called you. He has chosen you, and He has called you out. He has specified you for a purpose. He, in in the eternal grips of his own perfection and imagination, has looked out on the world and thought to himself, this is what I want to do for my glory, and I'm going to send that person to do it. 
I'm going to send them, to, I'm going to wire them uniquely, I'm going to create them in such a way that they alone can do the thing that I have set, outside, set aside for them to do and accomplish for my glory. Friend, hear the good news. If you walk in here with confusion, you wonder what's happening, if you hear nothing else, God has something for you. He has called you, it says here, in Jesus Christ. He has chosen a path for you. And this is awesome. Because if he's called it, then you can't mess it up. And that thing you did, that thing you don't want anyone else to find out about, that thing that would derail you, he's called you in spite of it. And even that thing can't stop God from his purpose of calling you to a purpose. Calling you to something he specifically designed you to achieve. The second thing he calls us, he doesn't ask us. Notice he doesn't say, hey guys, Consider the possibility that you might be called out for a specific purpose. He just assumes because of who Jesus is, you are called. I'm writing to you. You know who you are. You've seen Christ. Your eyes have been opened to this. The second thing he says, you are beloved in God the Father. I love that. You're loved by God. Not by God who's up there and out there, some nebulous force out to destroy you who's waiting to harm you, but you're loved by God who's what? The Father. I'm sorry for all of the broken and failed fathers in the room. And I'm sorry to my own daughters that they have to settle for a broken and sinful father. And I'm sorry to all of you who your father figure has let you down, including my own daughters. But you are beloved by God who is a father. And the weakness and failures of your fathers and my fathers are meant to serve as a constant reminder that we have a God who is a father who does not fail. He does not abandon us. This will hit home for me. He doesn't, he doesn't tell you to go run off and look at your iPad so that he can get work done. He doesn't run you off to stop being distracting like I do. He's a good father. He loves you. He's a perfect father. He would never give you anything awful. So you're beloved. This is the good news we see in Jesus Christ. When we have our eyes open to Christ, we would call ourselves now called. We are, God has chosen us. God is doing something in and through us. He's glorifying himself through us, through saving us. But next, we are beloved by God who is our father. And even when the world falls apart, we look and we're able to see that God is our loving Father and He means things that are good for us. Even the worst of things we talk about, even the worst of Fridays, we call Good Friday because of three days later, God the Father works it out for good. This is who we are. God works these things to good. Why? Because He's our Father. The third thing, it says we are kept for Jesus Christ. This is especially important. This is part of the doxology that wraps up the, the entirety of this book. This is really good for, both, for all of us in this room. Have you or are you currently running from God? Have you ever run from God? Has someone ever spoken the truth of God to you and that just annoyed you? And someone said, well, God wants you to do this, and you're like, Psh. Have you done that? Have you ever been in a spot where the last thing you wanted to hear was what God thinks or who God is? Have you ever run from God? Did, did you catch the good news here? Run as far and as fast 
as you possibly can, and you are still kept for Jesus Christ. Run as fast and as far as you can. Every one of your friends, every one of your family members may abandon you and give up on you. Keep, go ahead, try. And at the end of your running, you will find this truth to be refreshing and heartwarming. You are still in the grip of Christ. Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, like, I'm the shepherd and I have this flock and I hold on to this flock. They're mine. But even if it were possible that one could sneak out, he says that my father holds my hands over the hands that I hold my people. So even if it were possible for Jesus to fail, God cannot. So here's the good news for you. If you are currently running from God, if you're currently turned your back on what you previously believed to be true about God, friend, be encouraged you. He still holds you. He's not currently worried that you might slip out. He has the power to keep you. And so he tells us, here's the thing that he wishes for us before he tells us the body of his, of his letter. He says that, I hope then, may, verse 2, mercy, peace, and love will be multiplied to you. Let be multiplied. So I think there's a special importance for us. Now that we know that we're called beloved and kept, there's an interesting interjection of the word mercy before peace and love. Now this is important because we really want to run to the love part. Uh, we want to run to the love part where God loves me um, because I'm special, right? I'm, uh, I'm a snowflake. I'm one of a kind. I'm a princess, right? If you, as, as, as you're, I mean, obviously I'm not, I mean, you, I'm a prince. You're, you get it. That's actually in this chapter too. Uh, so, so here we go. Like, so like, there's an inclination in us to think that we're awesome just because we think that we are. And we find here that the love of God isn't because you're awesome, but instead it's predicated on His mercy and peace that He gives. His love is predicated upon mercy. So get this, His love for you is based on the mercy that He demonstrates for you. Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is the relenting of judgment. Mercy is the relenting of punishment. And before we can jump to the fact that God loves us, we have to admit the fact that we don't deserve it. The rest of this book does a good job of pointing that out, telling stories about this. But, but before we can embrace the love of God, Jude tells us in verse 2 that we have to first see the mercy of God. Now, our culture likes God loves you. That seems very harmless to them. Okay, God, thank you. Of course he does. I'm awesome. Have you met me? Of course God loves me. Our culture likes this. What our culture doesn't like is to hear that God should hate you. That God knows the darkness of your own heart and ought to punish you for it. And you see, what we celebrate as Christians is not just that God loves us. It's that God loves us in spite of us. God loves us even though he knows us. And that thing that you don't want anyone else to find out about, God, what does he multiply to us in Jesus Christ? Mercy. And God in his infinite grace and mercy has decided to glorify himself, not by demonstrating his wrath on your life forever, but by demonstrating his mercy. So that one day they won't say, well, Jonathan's awesome. And that's why God loves him. Jonathan's a snowflake. That's why God loves him. What they'll say is, how merciful is God that he loves him? 
How merciful must God be that he loves this Jonathan guy? And we'll celebrate the multiplication of what? Mercy. The second thing is peace. While mercy implies that there's some sort of judgment or guilt that we're being released from in Jesus, the second peace is what? It implies conflict. It implies that we are naturally creatures of wrath. We are naturally creatures that push back against peace. This is important for us. Jude wants God to multiply his peace among us. This starts again with the gospel. We start by saying we realize that because of who we are, because of our enmity and rebellion against God, we deserve to be under his wrath. We deserve to be at war with God. And some of you, I know that's probably how you feel. But what does he say is multiplied for us in Jesus Christ? Not only mercy, that is, the guilt that we don't receive, the punishment that he passes on to Christ instead of us, but it says peace. Have you ever been like pseudo-forgiven by someone? Like they showed you mercy, but they're going to lord it over you for the rest of their lives? Isn't this? I mean, this has never happened in my household, but I mean, maybe in yours, right? So, like if someone like kind of forgave you, but then they kind of like stay at odds with you. And they're like, I forgive you, but then they just like subtly, it like squeezes out of them on a regular basis. They're clearly still angry at you. You, need, you know this? You've been here? God is not like that. God is not forgiving you in Christ, but secretly holding a grudge. God doesn't forgive like you and I forgive. He doesn't say, oh, it's good for you in Jesus, but I'm going to make you miserable for the rest of your life. I'm going to constantly lord it over you. What do we see in the last couple of Psalms we saw? As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God removes us by his mercy and grace from our sin. The idea of forgive and forget, that we say that because we know it's impossible. That's utterly impossible. Not with God. With God, all things are possible, namely that he can show mercy, but he can also give us peace. And he's forgiven us in such a way that now he is no longer at odds with us. What's the last thing? Finally, it says love is multiplied. Because once you know that you deserve wrath and punishment, and you receive instead mercy and peace with, peace with God, he's not mad at me? Do you know what I did? Then all of a sudden, love means something, doesn't it? Love isn't that special if you think you're entitled to it. In fact, that's why a lot of people struggle in most relationships. They're not given the kind of love and worship that they believe that they deserve. But love is amazing when you know you don't deserve it. Love is amazing when you know that you ought not be loved. Love is amazing when you know that of all the things that could be loved, you're actually at the top of the list for someone. That's amazing. And we are constantly in a place where these are multiplied to us. So verse 3, he says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So everything I just told you about. He says, I would love, I would love if I could just write you and just say, hey, this is awesome. You're all doing great. Nothing bad is going to happen. I'd love to just, I'm eager to write to you about just how awesome it is that we have a common salvation, that Jesus has saved us. What does he say? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? He tells us in verse 4, for, therefore, because, for, 
certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, the grace of our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's break that down. He says certain people have crept in, that is, into the life of the church. They've crept into the teaching of, of the leaders and structures of the church who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So he gives us kind of this illusion. This, he alludes to a couple of different layers. The first one and the most important one is alluding to, to the Old Testament, right? Because he goes on a, a rant. If, if, you're, if you're kind of scatterbrained like me, you'll love Jude because uh, he doesn't stop to explain what he's telling you. He quotes some Jewish apocryphal literature because he's speaking to a, pretty, a predominantly Jewish context. He, he quotes some, some of the Old Testament. He goes all over the place and he doesn't explain any of it. And this is one of them. He just says, certain people have crept in on notice, and long ago they were designated for this condemnation. There's layers to this. The first one is the Old Testament. As if to say, when there were false prophets, they were outed, they were, they were made public, and God revealed them to be false, in that what they predicted, what they saw to be happening in the future didn't come about. And so judgment was on them. There's a whole bunch of them. My personal favorite would be uh, in, in, in the book of Kings, where... Uh, were the prophets of Baal, prophets in quotes, of course, uh, over 400 of them, call fire down onto a sacrifice, and the prophets of Baal call out to Baal, and Baal does nothing. God's prophet walks up there, calls down fire, it consumes them all, and then what happens? They slaughter all the prophets of Baal. All the false prophets are publicly killed. So he's alluding to all the ways in which in the Old Testament, if the prophecy wasn't of God and didn't come to pass, there was judgment. But he's also speaking and kind of alluding to a couple things. He's speaking to, to not just the Old Testament, but he's kind of alluding to the layers of this, even in the New Testament. Times in which there are false prophets, the, the apostles, Jesus himself, and the other followers of Jesus, predict will come. He says, in the last days, there's a, an apocryphal nature to this. Like, in the last days, an apocalyptic kind of prophecy, people will come and they will draw people to themselves. But then lastly, he's kind of alluding to something even more prominent, isn't he? Not just that like a prophet will be condemned, not just like false teaching will be outed, it kind of says that like there's this eternal nature to this condemnation. Long ago, those who are speaking false truth were condemned and designated for condemnation. As if to say that if you think you're in trouble, you have no idea. You've been in trouble even before you realize it. It says ungodly people. That's important because next week we'll see he goes on a litany around verse 14. Did you catch it? Just ungodly, ungodly, ungodliness, ungodly. About five different times. He says that the people, these people who are designated for condemnation they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our god into sensuality so what typically is the grace of god has been traded it says here for sensuality and this is an interesting word literally it means self-abandonment that is that what you're doing is an abandonment of that which is healthy or good it can be translated to mean the enjoyment or the expression or even the pursuit of physical, in this case, especially sexual pleasure. It's a reckless abandon. The way I would describe this picture of sensuality that shows up elsewhere in the New Testament, if it feels good, do it. What feels good is king. What feels good is the most important. If you feel bad, don't do it. 
if it feels good, get more of it. Do what feels right. Do what feels appropriate. Do what feels awesome in that particular context. But notice what happens. It says that in the end, they've denied their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So catch the twist of words he's saying there. Not only have they fallen into the desire that whatever they feel is good, it's actually now become their master. You ever notice how when you try to feel good all the time, you fail? And you ever notice how it becomes a very ruthless master? And you become a slave to a sensation? We see this in the picture of addiction. There's a sense in which this is how we relate to entertainment. This is how we relate to distraction. It becomes our master. This may not fall on all of you, but like, try. Try for the rest of the day not to look at your phone. Try not to use it as something that pacifies you or distracts you from what's really going on. Now some of you are like, I have a dumb phone, and I don't, that's not a problem for me. Good, fight the fight. You're awesome. We love you. <laughs> but for the rest of us, like with smartphones, it, it's like it has power. It's, it's almost like it's our, it's, it's our master. It's almost like I, I couldn't if I wanted to. That's just one, one kind of distraction that you and I are faced with. If it feels good, you do it. If it's distracting and it feels good, do it. And it becomes our master. So what happens is we trade the grace of God that calls us to a new life for whatever feels right and feels good at the time. Whatever feels appropriate. And then he goes into verse 5, kind of a a recount of the ways in which this new teaching has taken over. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And here's what we find out. This is something that's amazing, and this is meant to be a cautionary tale for us. The appeal to the Exodus here that he's talking about when God delivered his people out of Egypt, the appeal to the Exodus is a cautionary moral lesson. Most of the time that the Exodus shows up in the New Testament, it's meant to be an archetype or a typology for what Jesus is like. Jesus is like Moses who delivers God's people. Jesus is like the new deliverer. And the the freedom that we now have being literally redeemed out of slavery because of Jesus can be seen for us in the Exodus. But that's not what this story is it. This story isn't to point to what Jesus does to redeem us. This story is to point to what happens to people who, even though they're redeemed by God, choose not to trust him. Afterward, it says that God destroyed those who did not believe. So this is what this means for us. Just because people belong to the right community does not mean that they can escape the judgment of God. These people were set free. God had done miraculous things to walk them out. And yet they did not find their identity in their Redeemer and their Deliverer so much so that they wished they could go back. They didn't want where God was taking them. They wanted their own way. They wanted to be God. So just because you identify with the right group of people doesn't mean that you experience real freedom and it doesn't mean that you're safe 
from being under God's judgment, his evaluation of what's good and bad. He goes on, verse 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the exit is served as a warning for judgment, right? And then he gives us another Old Testament story to think about. He says, not only did the angels, this is Genesis chapter 6, come and, and take up and usurp positions of authority. This is the kind of ungodliness that was taking place before the flood. But then it says that just like Sodom and Gomorrah, this is Genesis chapter 19, set an example for what it looks like when God judges. So that you and I would know that God takes this seriously. Because one of the things that Jude does here, he doesn't just teach us about what we ought to think about who God is, but he teaches what we ought to think about the Bible. Did you catch how he teaches us how to read the Bible? Let me give you an example. Genesis, now, Genesis chapter 19. You can go there or just make a note of it. It's a story of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment on those cities, and he destroyed them. Lot, in kind of this neutral character, had just come back from battle. He'd just been kidnapped, and this is where we, when we just saw the story where Abraham intercedes for these people, right? Melchizedek, the priest, the priest king, whom Jesus follows in his lineage, right? This, this is where the story lands us, and now he's in Lot, and the city, Lot now is in Sodom, and the city seems to be a mess. It says that two angels, in verse 1, came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside your servant's house and spend this night and wash your feet. So Lot was at the gate as an authority, like a, like a hospitality representative for the city. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But in verse 3, Lot says he pressed them strongly and they turned aside to him. This is just like Judges 19. And they entered into the house and he made them a feast and he baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of, city, of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. In verse 5, and they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and had shut the door after them and he said, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. This word know almost every time from the beginning, Adam and Eve, after, connotes a sexual interaction. These people came, saw these beautiful angels and said, we want to have sexual relations with these angels, these beautiful things. Now, why is this important? Our culture would want you to believe that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not about sex. In fact, the Old Testament can't teach you anything about sexuality. In fact, if you refer to the Old Testament in reference to sexuality, you're out of date, you're archaic, you don't know what you're talking about. What did Jude just tell us the story of Sodom and Gomorrah was about? If we're wondering, in case we wanted to make the case, in case we wanted to say, no, that story's about hospitality. It's about how you can't harm or hurt people. That story's about how you be receptive and protective of your friends. People make this case that, that, that to talk about sexuality in the context of Genesis 19 is out of place. But what did Jude tell us? Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. They indulged in what? Sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. 
They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, get, get this straight. Sometimes the best questions that we have about the Bible can be answered by what? The Bible. It tends to teach us how we ought to think about who God is and how he reveals to us Scripture. So why is this important? Where do we land on this? He gives us some stories in which, and he even speaks to some Jewish apocryphal texts. We'll see that next week. He gives us some stories that show that God's judgment is serious, that God is for real, and that Jesus is coming back, and he takes what we do seriously. What does this mean for us? I think there's a couple things here. This means that on a regular basis, we stand for some things that will be very countercultural. This means that we believe some things about God that are tough for our ears. So, like, well, this story's about judgment and hell. Do they talk about judgment and hell every week? No, no. We try to only talk about judgment and hell as often as the Bible does. We try to only talk about hell as often as Jesus does, which I don't know if you know that. He talks about it more than any other character in the entire Bible. So no, we're not fixated on that. We're not fixated on judgment. But we will talk about it. And we will say things that often are unpopular. Why? Who taught us this? Our friend Jesus did this. Did you know that you don't get hung on a cross by telling people things that they want to hear? And so the picture of sensuality, of just doing whatever feels good, when it plays out in the teaching and leadership of the, of, of, the, of the New Testament church, means that not only do you do whatever feels good, you tell people whatever makes you feel good and them feel good. Tell them what they want to hear. And so this is who we are. This is the first groundwork of, of who we are and, and who we want to be as a church. Expect us to have a stubborn, persistent reliance on the gospel. This, this is important. Uh, we talked about with it, to be gospel-centered. This is a buzzword for churches um, that maybe haven't changed who they are, but now they call themselves gospel-centered. Um, so this is kind of a, like a, I don't know, it's like cheeky and cool at the moment. This is what it means for us. And this was helpful when we were talking about the women's retreat. There's some helpful language that was put in here. We are going to be stubborn about the gospel. We persistent. We will do this. We will constantly draw our attention back to Jesus. You will wish that we would talk about something else. You'll want something else. We won't give it to you. Why? Why? Because this is a big deal. Jude wants you to know this is important. This is monumentally important. You will want to appeal to sensuality. You'll want to come and say, hey, but this feels bad, Jonathan. All this talking about judgment and condemnation of my sin. I don't like the way that that makes me feel. Well, first of all, 21st century person, that's called emotional reasoning. Just because you feel bad doesn't mean you were actually harmed. Okay? The emotions are not the center of the universe. Blow your mind there. But second of all, God never, because he's a father, inflicts any harm onto his children that he ultimately means for his good, for their good and his glory. He only inflicts the kind of pain and discomfort that leads us to a greater joy in him. You'll want, you'll want something else. But we're a baby church plant, and this is what this means. Expect to get squeezed. Expect on a regular basis, like every week, you're going to come in here and you're going to go, this is the week that I can coast. This is the week Jonathan's just going to talk about how awesome I am, right? This is the week that I'm going to leave feeling really good. 
I'm just going to feel amazing about myself. I'm going to have high self-esteem after this sermon. I want to stop you. You won't get that. I don't care about your self-esteem. I care about your God-esteem. I don't care how highly you think of yourself. There is a judgment coming. Jesus is coming back. And for those that are in Him, He will glorify and share pleasure with forever and ever and ever. But if not, then friends, realize you might be deceived. And there is good news. You are called, beloved, and kept by Christ. Turn away. Turn away from the things that would please only the flesh. Look to God and His mercy. I want you to have joy in this. Sometimes the greatest pain can come from being, having awful idols ripped out of our own hands, but it leads to the greatest joy. Here's the second thing you can expect. Expect us to sound archaic. Expect us to sound out of date. Like on a regular basis, I'm like, hey, the Bible teaches that this is what it looks like to be in Christ and this is our identity. Expect to constantly be like, that sounds old and out of date. Expect to regularly look at me and be like, Jonathan, you're out of touch. Just expect, get ready for it. Get ready. You're going to be like, I have this problem with, with my boss, or I have a problem with my job, and I'm going to go like, let's go back to the old text. And, and you're regularly going to be like, ah, I wish I had something newer. I wish there was something better. Expect this. Expect us sometimes to sound paranoid. Why? Because Jude tells us that the greatest risk for our church is not what the outside culture will do to us. It's what we'll do to ourselves. Now you who know the gospel already know this. The greatest evil is in your own heart. It's not out there. And Jesus comes to atone for it, fix it, redeem it, make something beautiful out of it. But what this means is that as a church plant, as a little baby church coming to life, we're going to be really protective of the gospel we're going to be really protective of this we're going to fight for this we're going to die for this we'll die for this the perpetual virginity of marriage uh, uh, perpetual virginity of mary excuse me we won't die for that like like we'll suffer like some ghost chili heat for that right but we won't we won't die for that that's a secondary thing but this will die for it We will contend for the faith, according to verse 3. We will contend for the gospel because we know that the gospel is the only infinite treasure, so therefore it's the only thing that can afford to have us look to it always. Expect us to have a regularly and persistent reliance on the gospel and expect us to feel intense. And you'll come to me and you'll say, Jonathan, i got a problem with my relationship. I want to break up or divorce this person. And you'll want me to say, you're right, that person's a jerk. You should should ditch that person. Do what feels right. But I can't. You know why? Because the story that changes our life is the story of Jesus. A guy who fought and died for his cheating, rebellious bride. And you'll say, well, I got an awful boss. He's a terrible human being. Or she, whoever, they're terrible. And you'll want me to go, you're right. You should get out of there. But I can't, can I? Because since our focus is on the centrality of God's redeeming and reconciling work, now that you're reconciled to God, what have you been given? The ministry of reconciliation, even to your awful boss. You say, I got a brokenness here. There's something I don't like. And we'll say, look to Christ. He's the only one who can fix it. We're the group of people that Jesus juke everyone. 
and we're happy to. And when we look to sensuality, because I know some of you right now, you're thinking, this is hard, this is difficult, I don't know if I want this. I know this is expensive. And I know you want to do what just feels right. But the stakes are too high. And the mercy of God is too sweet. The mercy and the peace that he offers is a demonstration of his love for you. That even while you were rebellious, even while you were seeking your own sin, even while you want to do what feels good, he died in your place. And this is something that shapes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for how loving and caring you are to us. God, we know that now that we are in Christ, we are not under condemnation, but we are under conviction. So if there's any in this room that as we open the Bible together, if they feel condemnation, if they're overwhelmed with the shame of their own sin, if they're overwhelmed with fear, uh, would you begin to show them that's, that's not from you, that's from the devil. That's from the enemy. You are not a father who condemns. You're a father who saves. If anyone in this room, if they're under condemnation, would they begin now and look to Christ that he would take it from them? That you, Jesus, would take away our sin, our guilt, and our shame? You won't hold it against us. You won't hold a grudge against us forever, but you will take it away. You will forgive us and restore us completely. So if there's some in this room and they feel condemnation by your word, would you begin to stir them? Would you begin to lead them to trust you and to find their hope in you? Would they count the cost and see that the joy you offer in the cross is worth it? But maybe for those of us, we're in Christ and we know how good God is. Maybe we're under conviction. Maybe our false teaching isn't to stand up and mislead people. Maybe our false teaching is just apathy. And we're basically just telling everyone that it doesn't really matter. That Jesus isn't that big a deal. Maybe our false teaching is just one of laziness. I don't really need, I don't really need to do that. Maybe our false teaching is a selfishness, is a, it's a form of consumerism and individualism in which we say that we don't really need the church and we don't really need people to lead us and comfort us and encourage us. Would you begin to stir in us a sense of conviction? Not the condemnation that comes from the enemy, but the conviction that comes from a father. A father that draws his children close and leads them to a better way. Would you take maybe the conviction that we now feel and restore us by it, that we would look to you and realize that we are no longer in debt to you, but instead you have paid the cost that we once owed so that we would receive the glory and mercy of your resurrection. We love you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.